Please keep your booklets open to those passages. The ancient creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. And so now it's my great privilege this morning to do nothing more or nothing less than simply to proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And I want to ask you, as you meet here on Easter morning, do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? I think many of us would say, yes, we do. That's why we're here, because we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Perhaps there are some people who don't believe in it, are quite happy to say that, and that's fine, that's great that you're here. I might ask us another question then. Do you believe in change? Do you believe people can change? Do you believe a leopard can change its spots? Have you heard that saying? Can a leopard change its spots? It's a quote from the Bible, interestingly. Well, it's 2019. You can't live in 2019 and not believe in change because at this point in the history of humanity, we are experiencing change in a way that we've never experienced it before. And we like the idea of change. We like the idea of a politician with a reform agenda, someone who wants to change things. We are part of organisations that undergo structural reorganisation as it's known today as change management. We like the idea of bodily transformations. This is what I once looked now and this is what I look like here. Even home renovations are about change. So the answer to the question, can a leper change its spots, if you're living in 2019, is of course. Of course, a leper... A leopard can have blonde highlights, a new streamlined pride, a new bathroom. We believe in change. We experience change all the time. In fact, to cope in this world is to just to face the reality of change. See, we have very little hesitation about our capacity for change, the change of our environment, even the change of our physical selves if we just, you know, exercise more, a surface change. But what, what about a deep, radical and abiding change? It's easy to change, in one sense, the organisation of a company. It's very hard to change the behaviours of those who work within it. What about a deep, radical and abiding change? Perhaps we're a little more cynical about that kind of change. When we see change in a person, what do we think? Oh, she's just going through a phase. That won't last long. What do we say to ourselves when we're undergoing change? I'm not sure if I can keep this up. See, do you believe in change? Well, Christianity's clearest answer to that question is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Because what I want to show us this morning is that a change has occurred. A change has occurred in the life of Jesus... And that kind of change, as remarkable as it is, it's even more remarkable that the Bible promises that kind of change in our lives, one from death to life. And I want to do it by looking at this odd section from the Old Testament. If you want to look in your booklets there, that section from the prophet Ezekiel. Because here we have really the first Uh, section in the Bible that speaks about resurrection. And it speaks about this vision of a valley of dry bones. 
And it's so prominent that even in our first reading, when the Apostle Paul writes sections of the New Testament, he picks up on these very ideas that we see in Ezekiel. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray as we look at God's word. Father, just as Ezekiel proclaimed foolish words to dead bones, so Father, would you use these foolish words now and carry them by your spirit? And so would you please give us a sure hope beyond our fears? In Jesus' name, amen. The prophet Ezekiel, if you don't know, lived in dark times. It was not a blue sky future for the nation of Israel. Their city had been destroyed. And in fact, the icon of their city, their nation, their religion, their culture, their temple had been destroyed. I don't know if you saw last week those images from Paris of that cathedral, the one of Notre Dame. Those Parisians gathering around the flames and the ashes to sing songs of lament. The loss of this building was massive to them because of what it represented to their culture, to their nation. Well, that was the case for Israel. They had lost the icon of their culture and religion. They had lost the temple, but they weren't lamenting around the ruins of this temple. They were lamenting far from it because most of the nation of Israel had been carried hundreds of kilometres away to the city of Babylon. And it's in this moment of utter crisis that God calls this man, Ezekiel. He calls Ezekiel to be like an interpreter of what's happening in the life of Israel. The word the Bible uses for that is a prophet. This Ezekiel is going to speak words to this demoralized and hopeless people. And the book of Ezekiel is a dark and gritty book. And throughout the book, um, Ezekiel is given these really bizarre and odd visions. As you open up the first couple of chapters, you see there that Ezekiel is eating a scroll. He's actually eating the word of God. But the most famous of these visions is the one that we had read to us. There in Ezekiel chapter 37, this vision of the valley of dry bones from our second reading. And if you have a look there in verse 1, you see that Ezekiel is whisked away to this unknown location. He's taken by God and given this vision before him. And what he sees is this deep and dark valley. It's a valley full of bones. I used to love collecting bones from my uncle's farm. Sheep bones cow bones and, uh, you know, we'd all, in the trip on the way home, six hours from Aubrey, the odour of the bones and at least the horns that I had collected started to become manifest in the car and that's when my mum threw them out into the bin. But bones have that eeriness about them, even animal bones, but especially human bones. You know, to see a human bone is kind of creepy, isn't it? Um, a skull kind of gives us a sense of fear. In fact, my kids won't go to my favourite burger restaurant because it has a skull painted on the wall. One child, because of conscience, uh, won't even enter it. The other child won't stay in it. And the littlest child, his mum doesn't let him enter it because it's got a skull. It's not a nice place in that sense, the image of a bone. 
But here, it's not just a painted bone on the wall. It's a valley of death, littered with the vestiges of human remains. And the disturbing thing is that God doesn't just show Ezekiel this vision. He wants him to walk through it. He wants him to get a sense for it. He wants him to feel it. He wants him to survey the reality of this valley of death. And then after he shows him and and, uh, Ezekiel feels it, he asks him this really odd question. Have a look there in verse 3. He says, have a look at these bones. Now, Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? I don't know about you, what would you answer if you were escorted by God into this valley of death to see this desolation? What would you answer? How do you answer? In some way or other, we're all answering that question. It's hard to see it first, but in some ways, it's just that question that I asked at the start. Can people actually change? More pointedly, can you actually change? So you have to understand the context of what Ezekiel is speaking of here. In verse 11 there from our reading, we hear that these bones, that this valley represents something. Just like the temple represented God being with his people, what does the valley of bones represent? They represent the absence of God with his people. In fact, they represent the death of his people. Verse 11, our hope is lost and we are cut off. Our bones have dried up. Our bones have dried up is, um, is an idiom, just, just a way of speaking in, in the Old Testament for a hopeless situation. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 17, a crushed spirit dries up the bones. You see, if you are Ezekiel, walking through this valley of death, and God asked you that question, I don't know what my response would have been. Can God restore the nation? Can the relationship between God and his people be restored? Another way of answering that, can you actually change as a person? See, in Israel at that time, you would have felt significant loss. And I wonder if each one of us, if we were asked that question in that situation, can these bones live? Can you change? I wonder if the answer wouldn't have been no. This is a hopeless situation. Hope and life are often connected. I remember once when I was a kid, someone uh, criticised the way I was playing soccer and when I was eight, that was a big deal in my life and they said I was hopeless. And that might have been true. But that really hurt. You know, they, they didn't say, oh, so you had a fair bit to improve on or um, uh, there are some things that you could... Pra-. No, they sense that you, you're hopeless. There's no future for you. Because that's what it means to be without hope. To be without hope is a type of death. And I wonder, I want to ask you this morning, we're, it's all very nice for us to be gathered here, we're dressed well, but I know behind... The reality of nice clothes and smiles and busy or even successful lives, there is death. 
There is death that enters our lives. There are deaths of relationships. The death of relationship, perhaps a person that was so integral to your life is no longer present. Even a literal death of a friend or a family member or something worse, the death of a friendship so that that person is not present even though that they're alive. And so I want to ask you, can these bones live? There's death in families. Children go wayward. They won't talk to you or perhaps worse, they won't talk of Jesus. And I want to ask you, can these bones live? A marriage that has lost a sense of intimacy and honesty. Can these bones live? A death of self-control, enslaving addiction. It's killing you. And I want to ask you, can these bones live? A prognosis indicating that your body has failed literally. And I want to ask you, can these bones live? What would you answer? If God said to you, in a valley of death, or indeed in a dark moment in your life, can these bones live? What would be your answer? I, I tell you what, I love Ezekiel's answer. Have a look at verse 3. He doesn't say yes, because he doesn't want to be presumptuous. But he doesn't say no, because he knows who he's talking to. He says, verse 3, Oh Lord, you know. And I think what's clear from the rest of this passage is, yes, God does know. But the problem is, Ezekiel doesn't. Ezekiel doesn't know what God can bring out of this valley of death. And so God wants to teach Ezekiel this lesson. And so he commands Ezekiel to do the most ridiculous thing in the midst of this valley. He says there in verse 4, I want you to preach. I want you to preach in the middle of this valley to these inanimate bones. Get down there, Ezekiel. Start talking to them. Dry bones, are you listening? Hear God's word. See, it's ridiculous. It's the way the New Testament speaks about it. It's actually foolish to think that in that valley there could be life because it's a valley of death. And yet through the foolishness of the message that God does, something happens. Life comes out of death. Have a look there in verse 7. So Ezekiel says, I prophesied as God commanded me, and as I was prophesying, as I was speaking these ridiculous words, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. These bones, remarkably now in this valley, are reassembled. They're even re-skinned with sinews as well. But I want you to know they're not alive. They look like they're alive. They were once bones, but now they're upright, skinned, and presented before Ezekiel. They're reformed. But as incredible as that would be, that's not enough. That's not enough. You can look like you're alive. In fact, you can look like you're very successful. You can look like you're very happy. You can look like your life is amazing, but you know that there is death in your life, that there's a darkness in your life. No one else can see it, but you know it. You feel it. 
Because looking like you're alive is not enough. And that's not just what God does. Have a look there in verse 9. There's this most incredible moment of life where breath from the four winds comes and enters these bodies and then and only then do these bodies come to life. Here is a message of resurrection. And so what do we learn from this? Well, there are many things, but there are just two that I want us to remember this morning. Firstly, that the consequence of sin is death. In Ezekiel's mind, how dead are these bones? On a scale of one to dead, they are dead. They are utterly dead. And these bones represent people represent the reality of Israel. Yes, Israel is alive. They're upright. And maybe to even other nations, they look okay. But there is death. But surely that's not what they deserved, death. I mean, they were kind of okay at moments. Surely they didn't deserve this. Well, they didn't believe that they deserved it. They didn't believe, in fact, that the consequence of sin is death. God had told them earlier and throughout their whole history, he said this, back in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 12, is someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. Do you hear what Ezekiel's saying here? He's saying that one bad deed cancels all good deeds. Now, I know this is hard for us to understand. I mean, it's like a person being on a diet. Uh, I've never been on a diet, so I wouldn't know, but I know plenty of people in my family have been on a diet, and they try very hard, and it's strenuous mentally and physically. They avoid um, trans fats and takeaway foods, and they're tempted all the time, they reduce their BMI, whatever that is. And then after weeks, there's this moment of vulnerability where they're tired and there there's just a packet of chips, perhaps it's salt and vinegar, just their flavour, and they cave in. And there, the diet is lost. And isn't that a little like what Ezekiel is saying here? Or what God is saying to Ezekiel? You know, we try, you know... Like most people here today, try and be good. It's not as if we wake up in the morning and think, how can I be as evil as I can be? And yet what the Bible's saying here, it doesn't matter how hard we try. In fact, all it takes is one sin for which we have all committed and we're not right before God. See, because the issue isn't, and the picture is not like we're trying really hard and it's just one moment for which we fail. It's a whole lifetime of failing. And in fact, if you like, if you use that analogy, it's like we are trying on a diet, but just because we make one decision, what, what if it wasn't a packet of chips that we decided to eat? What if it was a packet of rat sack, of rat poison? See, it wouldn't matter how hard we had tried in our diet. What is going to result is our death. When the consequence of the act is death, no good deed, 
no matter how many good deeds we have, can make a difference. The righteous, God says, will not be able to live by their righteousness. And so it means that, you know what? It is a valley of death if you're an Israelite because only God can bring about life in their nation. See, Ezekiel knows that there is nothing a dead bone can do to bring itself back to life. If life comes, it has to be from God. You can't work your way towards it. You can't buy it with your resources. This is what Paul is picking up in that second reading from the book of Romans. And Christians uh, throughout our last 2,000 years have noticed connections between what the Old Testament is saying in Ezekiel and this valley and what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Because there in Romans chapter 8, you'll see in your outline, verse 6, Paul says that the mind that is governed by the flesh is death. Verse 7, the mind is hostile to God. It can't please God. And so when Paul is speaking about flesh, he's talking about what it is to be a human. And he says that to be a human, it is like being dead before God. Our minds are hostile to God. Our lives are full of spiritual death and decay. In fact, what Paul says is that picture of Israel in that valley of death is in fact not just a picture of Israel. That is a picture of all humanity. That is indeed a picture of our lives, one filled not with life, but with death. And so this challenges really the way we view ourselves and I think the way we view sin. Because often the way we view sin is that sin is simply just, you know, when our lives get off course and we make a mistake. But that's not how the Bible sees sin. And it doesn't, uh, it's not how the Bible sees being a Christian because being a Christian is not simply being a moral kind of religious person who's trying to steer their life back towards God. Now, being a Christian person is realising that in your heart, there is in fact death. And what you need in your whole body, your heart, mind and soul, is resurrection. What we need is not just a better life, but a new life. What we need as Christian people is not just redirection to get us back on a course, but what we need in our life is resurrection from death to life. And only God provides that. And so that is why we're here this morning. Because God raised a man 2,000 years ago. And that reality, the Bible says, can be at work. If you can believe that, that reality can be at work in your life now. Because do you believe that? Oh yeah, of course you do. So why aren't you more amazed that Jesus has been raised? When we consider, why? When we consider what we have been given in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, why aren't we filled with awe, joy and gratitude? You know when someone asks you how you're going and you say okay or good, but actually in your mind you're playing over all the things in your life that you're not quite happy with? Do you ever do that? Do you believe in the resurrection? How are you doing? See, if you believe in the resurrection, I'm glad. But I think the truth is, 
so often I don't believe in the resurrection because I don't understand that the consequence for my sin is death. And that is what I deserve. And the only way I can gain new life is through the power of God in my dead heart. See, how are you going? It's not okay. No matter what's happening in your life, the Christian is able to say, how are you going? Well, much better than I should be because I'm a child of God and Jesus rose from the dead and I will rule and reign with him for all eternity and I did nothing to deserve it. How are you doing? A lot better than I should be. Second lesson. First lesson is that the consequence of sin is death. The second lesson is that the consequence of God's work in our life by his spirit is life. Because this is what God does in Ezekiel chapter 37. In a decay, in a despair, in a people's lives, what does he pour? He pours his spirit. And when he pours his spirit, what does it bring? It brings life. It brings life. You see it back there in Ezekiel 37 verses 5 and 6. Twice, in fact, we're told that these bodies are now upright. They look like they're alive, but it's not enough. Because this breath is waiting to come within them. This breath which is at one sense so gentle but in another sense is so powerful. It's like the four winds coming upon this valley there. As the Spirit of God comes into this valley, verse 10, these bodies are brought to life. And you need to know that the word for breath in the Old Testament is exactly the same word for spirit. God comes through his breath into this valley and life is brought about. God comes into our lives by his spirit and life is brought about. See, without the spirit of God at work in us, what are we? We're upright corpses pretending that our lives are okay or trying to convince ourselves that Our lives are okay. But if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, God says that you are just like those bones in that valley, without God and without hope. Can these bones live? Can these bones live? Ezekiel's answer is yes. Have a look there in verse 14. Because God promises that he will put his Spirit in you and you will live. See, this is a promise. This is a promise from God that can be experienced now. This is something that Paul picks up. You see in that first reading, he says, If the Spirit of God, verse 11, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. See what happens when you trust in Jesus? You know. You don't have to pretend that there's not decay or death in your life. You know that without God you are dead. But you know something even more. You know that God has come into your life, into the heart of who you are, and has breathed his spirit. And so if you're a Christian today, you have experienced the resurrection. This is what Paul is saying. It is a reality 2,000 years ago. But it's a reality that's at work in us now. If you've you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, 
Paul will say elsewhere that you are a new creation. And so if you're a Christian, you cannot be cynical about change. You cannot think that you'll never change or say to yourself, that's just me. Yeah, it is just you. But in Christ, you died. And Christ has come into your life. And he has given you new life and his spirit and his animating reality controlling your once dead heart and mind. And I know for some of us, if we've been a Christian for a while, yet yeah, we, we, you know, we believe that, yes, change, but, you know, I don't see enough of it. I especially don't see enough of it, you might feel, in my life. But can I say that if you wish to see more change, the problem is that you are giving yourself too much credit. Don't you see that even your desire to change is a work of the Spirit? Your hatred of sin, that is the life the Spirit that is give, that is the life that the Spirit is giving you now. See, one day, one day you will be in a valley. You will be on a deathbed. You will die. And Jesus will say, "Come forth. Come forth, because you are united with him in faith. Let me finish with this story around. 300 AD in ancient Rome, there were 40 wrestlers. 40 wrestlers who wrestled for entertainment at the behest of the emperor, but also 40 wrestlers who at the peak of their male strength fought for that same emperor. They were strong men, fit men, the rugby players of the ancient world. But there was a problem in the, emp- in the empire around 300 AD. 300 years after Jesus was born, there was a problem because people started believing that this man that was dead, Jesus, was alive again. And it wasn't just lowly people. It wasn't just officials. It was also military hardened types. And the emperor was worried. In fact, the one who controlled this part of the empire was worried that some of his troops were starting to believe in this ridiculous message that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And so he wanted to stamp out Christianity in his world, in his empire, and particularly in his army. So he got his military commander, Agricola, who had under his command these 40 wrestlers. And he had suspicions. He had suspicions. There were quite a number of these wrestlers who had come to believe in this stupidity of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so he had them file in front of him with an image of Caesar and they were to bow before Caesar as their Lord. They were asked to worship him. And it just so happens that the first wrestler refused. And then the second wrestler refused. And then the third. And then the 39th. All 40 wrestlers refused to worship this emperor that they had once served. And this worried them. This got them really frightened. And so what they did is they they locked them up in prison. They said, look, in the morning, we'll let you out if, if you can worship the emperor. They put them in prison. They let them out. And as they let them out the next morning... They cried, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ. 
and this really freaked them out. And so they upped the stakes. They took that, those 40 men in the middle of winter onto a frozen lake. They stripped them naked and they asked them to endure the winter's night on that frozen lake. But around the lake, they lit fires. And there, the officials invited any of those 40 who would like to leave that lake and come to the warmth of that fire. They could come as long as Caesar was their Lord and not Jesus. And so that night, the military commander watched by the fire, hoping to see any one of those wrestlers. But throughout the night, they kept on saying, 40 wrestlers for thee, O Christ, 40 wrestlers for thee, until the early hours of the morning. And there, crawling toward one of those fires, appeared a man. It quietened down for a while. And then what could be heard was, 39 wrestlers wrestling for thee. O Christ. And one of the guards who had been watching, who had seen these men, who had seen courage like he had never seen before, seen hope and strength that he had never seen before, an ability to hold on to something so precious in the middle of such pressure, he too left the fire that warmed him, stripped himself naked and joined them And so it was heard again, 40 wrestlers wrestling for thee, O Christ. After a matter of days, 40 Christians died. And because Jesus rose from the dead, they will rise again. See, if you know the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, if you know that the power that raised him from the dead is also that same power that's at work in your life, then you don't need to gain the whole world. You're willing to lose it. Because there, in Jesus' resurrection, is everything for you. There is hope. There is meaning. There is life. Do you believe in the resurrection? Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Please stand as we sing.